Well, good morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. That's page 196 in the black Bibles that are provided there. In our study through the book of Joshua, we've come to chapter 22, which means we've entered into the final section of the book. The book of Joshua can be divided into four sections, and one scholar labeled those sections this way, which I thought was very helpful, so I pass it on to you. Chapters 1 through 4 is about entering the land. The next section is chapters 5 through 12, which is about taking the land. Then chapters 13 through 21 is possessing the land. And now today we come into chapters 22 through 24, which is about retaining the land. So that gives you kind of just an overview of the, of the book of Joshua. But today as we study Joshua chapter 22 specifically, I'd ask you to, con- to start off by considering these questions with me. What links would you go to in order to keep your relationship with Christ strong? In other words, what effort, what sacrifices would you go to in order, to, in order that your relationship with Christ would stay healthy and strong? Another question, would you ever step in to help a professing believer who is drifting from the Lord? Would you ever step in and, and, and try to help with that? Or do you kind of have the attitude of, you know what, that's just between them and God. These are questions that I trust you'll see kind of get addressed here in, in Joshua chapter 22. The title of the sermon this morning is Fervent for Loyalty to Christ. We're going to see the Israelites be fervent for loyalty to the Lord, and I trust that, that will, God will speak to us and, and motivate us to be fervent for our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Today in God's word, we're going to see Israel go to great lengths to ensure that certain tribes among Israel were not straying from the Lord. And so we're going to work through the chapter today under four headings. If You'll see those uh, divided off in your bulletin there if you care to take notes. Heading number one is this, peaceful parting. Peaceful parting. We see that in verses one through nine. Now, if you'll recall, back in chapter one of Joshua... As Israel was preparing to cross the Jordan, Joshua reminded the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, he reminded them of Moses' command back in Numbers 32. And that was that though, we can go ahead and have the map anytime, please. That was the, what Moses uh, had commanded and what Joshua reminded the, the tribes was that though God had granted to the tribe of of uh, Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, though God had granted them their inheritance land east of the Jordan, God had also commanded them that they, the fighting men had to, go, had to cross the Jordan and go with the other tribes to do the fighting. In other words, they couldn't just say, hey, <laughs> we can kick back, we've already got our land, we don't need to go fight all the Canaanites with you guys. No, God had commanded them that they were to do that, and so Joshua reminded them at the beginning of the book, and that's exactly what they've done then. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were allowed to settle their families and, and their flocks and things there on the east of the Jordan, but the fighting men were to go over into the land of Canaan and, and help until the land was subdued. 
So again, Joshua reminded them at the, that of the, at the outset of the book, but now we've come to chapter 22, and for the last seven years, that's exactly what's been happening. All the fighting men have been waging these battles within the land of Canaan. And, and even though there is some more Canaanites that need to be driven out, like we've seen the last few weeks, the land's being allocated. Um, in one sense, the land is coming to be at rest, and so... The time has come here in chapter 22 for Joshua to release those two and a half tribes and say, you guys can go back to your families. Okay, you've been faithful to fight um, with your brothers. So that's what we're going to see here in verse 1. Look with me at the text of Joshua chapter 22, verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. So you see, Joshua's commending those two and a half tribes, the fighting men, the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. He's commending them for their obedient service. He's saying, hey, you guys have done great. You have honored your commitment. You've fought side by side with your, with your Israelite brethren here. You've obeyed the Lord by obeying Moses and by obeying me, the, Lord, the Lord's servants. So think about that. They've, they have been faithful through those many battles, seven years of fighting. They've, they've been arm, arm in arm fighting with their Israelite brethren. So then Joshua continues in verse 4. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So you see, having honored their commitment, Joshua tells the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, he tells them, hey, you guys are free now to return to your families, to your own inheritance on the east side of the Jordan there. But before they leave, Joshua blesses them, right? I mean, he's commended them already, and now he blesses them, and he charges them to stay faithful to the Lord. Did you see that? To love the Lord their God, to be careful to keep his commandments, to cling to him, to serve him with all their heart and soul. What a beautiful summary of the Old Testament law, isn't it? Sounds a lot like how Jesus summarized the the Old Testament when he was asked to do that, right? When he gave, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? In other words, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your being. And that's the same thing Joshua is charging them now, right? So this is a really cool scene. This is an emotional scene. It kind of reminds me of of parents, you know, saying goodbye to their son or daughter, right? You know, maybe they're leaving for college or leaving, you know, to move out of state or whatever to start their own life, start their own career. That's kind of what we have here. Right? They're going out to live on their own. And that, again, thinking of a parent doing that with their child. The parent loves the child. They, they're, they're proud of their son or daughter. And they, what, what do they want most for them? They long for them to faithfully follow Christ all their days. 
And that's what Joshua is saying to these two and a half tribes. And by the way, we have a lot of young people. We're blessed to have a lot of young people in our church, right? Know that that is our prayer for each of you young people, right? You've been blessed to to grow up uh, in Christian homes. Many of you have professed faith in Christ publicly. And, and, you know, someday you're going to be living on your own. And in the coming years, we, we pray that you will stay true to Christ. That you, as Joshua says, that you will love him, that you will serve him, that you will cling to him. That you realize this isn't just something I'm doing for my parents, but this is something I believe. This is, this is how I'm going to orient my life. Because Jesus is Lord. And so these were Joshua's words to the two and a half tribes. We continue with the, this, this scene here in verse 7. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers, verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Okay, so again, for seven years, these men have been away from their families. They've been fighting alongside their Israelite brothers. And now they're finally getting to go home. But notice they're not going home empty-handed. Right? They're, they're taking spoils from, the, from all their many victories that the Lord has given them. So picture what that scene is going to be like when those men return to those two and a half tribes east of the Jordan. You know, the families are going to be so excited to see them, right? You know, wives running out to hug their husbands. Kids, you know, having not seen their fathers for years. And, and here are these men coming with the spoils of victory that the Lord had given. Imagine the celebration as the men show off those spoils of victory. As they, as they testify to the many miracles and, and victories that the Lord gave them. And so there would be much rejoicing by the families there east of the Jordan. Being reminded that God is faithful to his promises. And yes, the God of Israel is the true God. So chapter 22, again, is an emotional scene. It's a very, kind of starts with a very positive vibe, doesn't it? You know, it's, this is like, this is great. But the mood quickly changes now in verse 10 as we come to our second heading. And I called that, this section, apparent apostasy. Apparent apostasy. Apostasy means to depart from the faith. And that's what it looks like that these eastern tribes are doing here in verse 10. Look with me at the text. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, right, by the Jordan River, an altar of imposing size. Okay? So they, they built this this. Very big altar, and we don't know exactly where it is, but it sounds like it was just west of the Jordan. Probably, some scholars think it was in Gilgal, which was that kind of like where their first camp was when they crossed the Jordan. Well, then in verse 11, the rest of Israel hears about this. 
Look at with me at verse 11. The people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, look at their reaction here, verse 12. The whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Remember, Shiloh is kind of like where, uh, that's where uh, they've moved the, um, the tabernacle. That's where kind of their base is now. And so now when the rest of the, the nine and a half tribes hear of what the two and a half tribes have done, they, they're, they're hearing about this and they're like, man, we've got to go stop them. We've got to go make war with them. And you might say, what? what's the big deal? <laughs> All they did was build a, build a, a big altar. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God clearly forbids setting up alternate shrines or centers of worship. God commands Israel that they are to offer their sacrifices only in the place that God will choose, which for now is at the tabernacle in Shiloh, right? Eventually it will be in Jerusalem. And God, this is what God commanded, so that's enough for us, right? But, but it's, we should also point out, see, the Canaanite practice was that they would worship their gods under every spreading tree, basically. They would set up places of worship all, o- all over the place. And so that's why you'll see throughout the Old Testament, Israel's commanded to tear down the high places, to tear down the Asherah poles, to tear down the Baals. And so... As we see often, God's people are to be different. They're to be distinct. And so Israel was to be different than the Canaanites. They were to worship God in the one place that God had commanded them. They were to worship God where he prescribes and how he prescribes, right? And so for them to start building altars in other places in which to... For them to start building altars where they would offer sacrifices and worship God in other places, well, that was to become like the Canaanites, and that was a clear violation of the covenant, of their covenant with the Lord. So this is a very serious deal. That's why the nine and a half tribes are responding the way they are. By building this altar, it looks like the two and a half eastern tribes are breaking the covenant. And as we keep reading, notice the, the way this act is described. It's described as that, as a breach. The western tribes believe that the eastern tribes are committing apostasy here. They think that they are breaking the covenant. They think that they're opening the door to worshiping Canaanite gods. Therefore, the western tribes are prepared to go to war with them, to stop them. The eastern tribes are forsaking the Lord. And they know that this could could lead to God's judgment upon the whole nation. So, things have gotten tense very very quickly, right? But but, but thankfully, before uh, the, the western, the nine and a half... Western tribes attack the eastern tribes. They first, very, very wisely, we'll, we'll say, they first send a delegation to confront the two and a half tribes. Look at verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. So one chief from each of the remaining ten tribes, nine and a half, right, but ten basically represented, with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the the priest leading them. I'm going to say more about Phinehas in just a minute. Look at verse 15. 
And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. So now they're over there um, east of the Jordan, right? They're over where the two and a half tribes have their possession. And they're having this delegation. They're confronting them. They're saying, verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. That phrase, breach of faith there in verse 16, that's the same word that was used to describe the sin of Achan back in Joshua 7 when he broke the covenant um, with, with the Lord concerning the devoted things there in Jericho. Right? So this is serious. They, they think that those tribes are, are breaking the covenant Look at verse 17, they continue. Have, have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which we even yet have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So again, you keep seeing how intense this is. They think they are breaking the covenant. Let me explain a couple of references there. The sin of Peor, right? They're saying, have we not had enough of the sin of Peor, verse 17? That refers to that awful incident in Numbers 25 when Moab seduced Israel into idolatry and immorality. And if you go back and, and look at that, I'll let you do that on your own time. But at that time, the men of Israel started marrying the daughters of of Moab, the Moabites, right? And again, it's not about, oh, interracial marrying. It's about interfaith marrying. And that's why God didn't want them to do that because he knew that they would be led astray and to idolatry. And that's exactly what was happening then. The men of Israel started marrying the daughters of, of Moab and it turned the hearts of Israel astray and they started worshiping Baal there in Numbers 25. And so Israel's spiritual adultery brought the immediate judgment of God there. In Numbers 25. As a matter of fact, it says God brought a plague upon the congregation of Israel. And 24,000 people died. And more would have died had it not been for Phinehas. And that's where he comes into the picture. Because there in Numbers 25, there, it, when this, all this is happening, right? All this sin is, is, is taking place. It says that there was one particular Israelite man who was just just kind of like thumbing his nose at the Lord and was publicly rebelling against the Lord's command and kind of flaunting the fact and taking a Moabite woman into his tent. And at that moment, Phinehas, filled with righteous anger, goes into the tent and runs both the Israelite man and the Moabite woman through with a spear. And by doing that, the Bible says, the text says, Phinehas turned away the Lord's wrath, stopping the plague against the people. Matter of fact, let me just read how God commends Phinehas in Numbers 25, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. This is the Lord speaking, right? 
Therefore say, behold, I give to him a covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Wow, we could preach on that the whole day, couldn't we? You know how that... Doesn't that make you think of Christ, right? You know, Christ who is the propitiation for our sins. He turns away the wrath of God that we all deserve. He's made atonement for his people. But you see, this has already happened. And here, it's appropriate, isn't it? That Phinehas is the one leading this delegation then to talk to these two and a half tribes. Because in in Israel's eyes, those eastern tribes, they're likewise right now breaking the covenant with the Lord by building this altar. And so as, as, they, as this delegation confronts them, you can hear the exasperation, the frustration in their voice, even the fear of God's punishment as they say in verse 17, have we not had enough of the sin of Peor? Right? 24,000 people died and we're still dealing with the aftermath of that. Did we not learn from the sin of Achan? That was just a few years ago, right? When Achan broke the covenant and, and, and many of us were defeated then at, at Ai. They know that God is holy. They know that God does not turn a blind eye when his people break his covenant. And so such, they know that such sin and unfaithfulness will be met with God's punishment. And so they've learned, praise God, they've learned from the sin at Peor. They've learned from the sin of Achan that breaking the covenant brings God's wrath against the whole nation. Did you see how often that was emphasized there? That's why they're referencing these things. It's like, hey, not only is God going to judge you, he's going to judge us all. Because one sin affects, affects the whole nation. And so these western tribes are pleading with the eastern tribes to not break faith with the Lord. And did you notice, by the way, how, how fervent they are about this and, and really how gracious they are about this? The western tribes even offer to give part of their land to the eastern tribes. Right? They're like, hey, if for some reason you know, th- that land is not good for you, then, then let's... let's reallocate here right you know we'll give you some of the land here west of the Jordan only don't break faith with the Lord they are willing to maintain fidelity to God even at a great personal cost they are fervent for loyalty to the Lord and so they've confronted the eastern tribes That leads to our third heading then, in verse 21. Clarifying confession. Clarifying confession. Look at verse 21 with me. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, right, they've just been confronted, now what are they going to say? Look at verse 22, it's beautiful. The mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in a breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. So you see, they're clarifying what's what's happening here. They're they're confessing their faith. They say, no, the mighty one, God, the Lord. They declare that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. What a beautiful confession. It's kind of what they're saying there. It's kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of the early church's confession that Jesus is Lord. 
The eastern tribes declare their faith in the Lord clearly and boldly. And they appeal to the Lord. They say, God knows our hearts. We're, we're not, I, I understand what it looks like, I guess, but we're not doing what you think we're doing here. We haven't built this altar to offer sacrifices. We're not breaking the covenant. We're staying true to Yahweh. So and then in verse 24, they explain why they did build this altar. Look at verse 24. No, again, we didn't do, we're not doing what you think, but we did it from fear. Here's why we built the altar. From fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. That's what they're afraid in the coming generations are going to say about them. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, verse 28, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Man, when you're clarifying, it always helps to, be, to, be, to repeat yourself, right? To be explicit. And that's exactly what they do. They explain their motivation for building this huge altar. Did you catch what it was? See, they're worried that in, in generations to come, right, when their descendants need to cross over the Jordan and come to the tabernacle and for the, to offer sacrifices for the fest, to celebrate the festivals, they're worried that in generations to come, the descendants of the western tribes might say, who are you guys? You don't have any part of Israel. You, got, you, know, you guys are like a totally different country over there east of the Jordan. And not let them come. And, and you know, not think that they're not God's people. Right? That's what they're worried about. And so that's why they built this altar to just be like this memorial, uh, this, this testimony that no, even though we're over here on the other side of the Jordan, we are God's people. We believe in the same God that you do. We worship and follow the same God that you do. We want to come and, and offer sacrifices to him. So that's why they say repeatedly, we did not build this altar, this other altar here by the Jordan. We did not build it to offer sacrifices on it. We know that would be breaking the covenant. We're not going to do that. We just build it to be a witness, to be a testimony to future generations. That we are a part of Israel and we worship the same God, the God of Israel. So you see, the eastern tribes did not build this altar to diminish the tabernacle, but to say that we want to come and worship there at the tabernacle. We are equally committed to the worship of Yahweh. So isn't it interesting? The, the building of this altar is, is really for the very opposite reason that the western tribes had feared, Right? Western tribes thought that the altar was evidence that the eastern tribes were breaking the covenant, but actually the altar was, was the eastern tribes' way of declaring that they're committed to the covenant, committed to the Lord. 
And so that clarification then leads to our final heading in verse 30. Grateful glorifying. Grateful glorifying. You can tell I tried hard to keep my pattern going, can't you? But I, I think that accurately describes the response of the Western tribes. Look at verse 30. I mean, they are, they are praising the Lord. They're so thankful that this crisis has been averted. Look at verse 30. When Phinehas, the priests and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. Verse 31. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst. Because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. It's like this collective sigh of relief, right? Praise God. You guys are not (laughs) uh, being unfaithful. You're staying loyal to the Lord. And so Phinehas, speaking for the whole delegation, is grateful to God for how things have turned out. That the eastern tribes have not broken the covenant, even though that's what it, how it first appeared. Matter of fact, they're being diligent to declare their loyalty to the Lord. And so Phinehas says, all of this is evidence that the Lord is in our midst. He's given praise to God. He's saying, God is the one who's kept the eastern tribes believing the truth. God is the one who's, who's caused this situation to be resolved in a peaceful way. To God be the glory for preserving our unity, for, adverting us, for, for keeping us from going to civil war here. Praise God. Phinehas and then in the delegation returned back to the people of Israel to give this, this good report of how, the thing, of how this meeting went. Verse 32, then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, in the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And they have the exact same response, of course, right? Verse 33, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. What a great passage this is. What a great account. Phinehas reports back to the rest of Israel. Again, they, they're, they're having this great same grateful response. The report's good in their eyes. They bless God for preserving them all in the unity of faith. They call the altar witness because for generations to come, it'll be a witness to all the tribes that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. So that that very altar, what what threatened to, to bring disunity, actually becomes a symbolic reaffirmation of the national unity of the 12 tribes. They are united in their confession that Yahweh is God. They are united in their commitment to serve and worship the Lord. And now... As I close, I want to bring this to our day, right? Is that not what unites us today as the body of Christ? It is our confession that Jesus is Lord. Right? Why are we here? (laughs) Why are we not somewhere else today? You know, shopping, doing home projects, watching football. It's because we believe by God's grace that Jesus is Lord. And we placed our faith in him and we want to worship him. We believe by God's grace 
that Jesus is the Savior. God has graciously opened our eyes to the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again in the place of sinners. That Jesus is the only way for for sinful people like us to be made right with the holy God. And by God's grace, many of us today have trusted in Christ for our eternal salvation. And so in doing so, we've committed to following him as Lord for all of our days. And in just a few minutes, we're going to have the joy of witnessing some individuals declare that same faith publicly through baptism. And week after week, loved ones, as we come together, singing, taking the Lord's Supper, sitting under His Word, we are jointly declaring that Jesus is Lord. Right? Think about that. We're not just doing this out of ritual. We're not, I hope... I hope we're not just doing this out of tradition. No, we're coming together declaring that Jesus is Lord. And as we together follow Christ, seeking to know him, seeking to bring our lives ever more in submission to his word, we're declaring that Jesus is Lord. And the fact that we can do that, the fact that we want to do that, is evidence that God's spirit is at work among us. We too, like Israel, can joyfully and gratefully say, the Lord is in our midst. Because on our own, none of us would declare that Jesus is Lord. By nature, we all want to be Lord of our own life. But God, by his spirit, has given us the new birth. And he's, again, granted us faith to see that Jesus is Lord of all. So my big I have two applications today, but the first big one is just rejoice in God's grace. Rejoice that God is in our midst. As we witness the baptisms, rejoice that the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work in our families by His grace. The Word of God is living and active. The Spirit is present and at work. So let us rejoice and let us continue in faith to teach His Word, expecting God to do great things. For his glory. And let us rejoice in the grace of God. And then the second application is. Let us be fervent for loyalty to Christ. So let us rejoice in God's grace. That he's in our midst. And let us be fervent for loyalty to Christ. We know that it is God who ultimately preserves us. By his grace and love. But he commands us to keep following him and to keep abiding in his love. And so I was struck this week, you know, again, just at the fervency of of, of Israel wanting to see that all their people were following the Lord and were staying faithful to the Lord. And granted, I understand they were fearing judgment and things like that. And, And in the New Testament, we know Christ has borne that judgment Praise God. But still, the New Testament calls us to that same kind of fervency and love for one another. And so, as we think about being fervent for loyalty to Christ, first let's think about our own walk. Ask yourself today, does Jesus still have my deepest loyalty? Does Jesus still have my deepest loyalty? Or have I grown lax in my commitment to Christ? Are there areas of my life where I'm not submitting to Christ's lordship? 
there are, by God's grace, return, repent of those things and, and ask for his help to, to stay loyal to him. He deserves our loyalty. Let us be fervent for our individual loyalty to Christ and for our corporate loyalty to Christ. Like Israel did here in, in Joshua 22, let us come alongside our brothers and sisters in love when it seems that they may be straying from faith in Christ. Matthew 18 gives us details of how to do that, doesn't it? We come, we come humbly. We come first seeking clarification to make sure we're understanding the situation right. Are, you know, is this really sin? And if it is, then in love and in humility, we show them where they've gone astray and we urge them to repent for their sake, for God's glory, for the good of the church. Because we are a body. We want to bear much fruit for his glory as the body of Christ. We want to declare to those around us and to the generations to come that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. And we do that now. God, Father, Son, Spirit, we declare that Jesus is Lord. He indeed has defeated sin and death through his life, death, and resurrection. We know that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And we praise you that he reigns now, Father, from your right hand in heaven. And that one day he is returning to establish and and complete his kingdom once and for all. And so, Lord, if there are any here today who have not bowed the knee to Jesus, we pray that by your grace you would open their eyes, that they would understand and and believe and see that Christ has died and, and he's risen and exalted, that he is Lord. Oh, let them joyfully bow the knee to him now in faith and in repentance. Save them, Father, for, your, for the glory of your name. And Father, many of us, again, you've already been so gracious to us for that. And we thank you. We praise you. Truly, you are in our midst. Truly, you, as we celebrate at Christmas time, you took the initiative to come down and be in our midst. You came to seek and save the lost. And we praise you and thank you that you have sought and saved many of us. Help us to continue to fervently declare with our lives and with our lips, that Jesus is Lord. Let us be fervent about our loyalty to Christ. We know we still battle uh, the the flesh and the world and the devil. We know there's still so many things that that seek to um, hinder our our walk with Christ, that seek to, to, uh, that still go after other loyalties, Lord, that, Draw our affections away from Jesus. Oh, help us to repent of those. Help us to declare again our loyalty to you. We need your grace, Lord. We know on our own we are so weak. So, Lord, we need you. We we praise you for your persevering, preserving grace that enables us to persevere. May we be a church that, that is fervent and stays loyal to Christ no matter the cost in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand together, please? We'll continue to worship the Lord in song. And... um,
For those who are going to be baptized, please uh, go ahead and get prepared for that.